electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the bull run for stocks as the S&P 500 tops 3,900 for the first time ever. And one big-time market watcher now says the correction is over. We'll discuss, we'll debate that and the state of your money with the Investment Committee today. Joining me for the hour are Joe Terranova, Pete Nigerian, Bryn Talkington is managing partner at Requisite Capital Management, Rob Seachin, co-founder and the managing partner of New Edge Capital Group. Good to see everybody. Let's go to the wall, take a look at where stocks are. The three majors hitting new record highs today. Strong for energy, discretionary oils near 60 S&P, as I said, above 3,900 for the first time. It's sitting right at that level. You've got the 10-year at the highest level in about a year. Pete Nigerian, I go to you. Congratulations on the Bucks, your former squad. I see you've got some paraphernalia behind <laughs> oh, you, so I know you're happy about <laughs> all sir. of that. I'm sure you had to dig that out of the basement somewhere. All oh, right. man, that's been sitting here. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Pete. Anyway, Mike it was Wilson. A great game. Great game. Okay, Mike Wilson. Yeah. Last week, Mike said that it was Monday, I think. Mike Wilson said the correction mm-hmm. had arrived and it was likely to get worse. You know what Mike Wilson's saying today, Pete? Mike Wilson says the correction's <laughs> over. That was quick. Wow. That's that that is quick. I'm not so sure I necessarily agree with it being over. I love love Mike Wilson. I listen to his work all the time because I think he's one of the sharpest there is on Wall Street. But uh, Scott, we had that one day, and if you just go back a little over a week ago, it was that Friday where we had that that 600 point down move, and we also had a volatility index that was hitting 37. The acceleration of how volatility dropped all the way down towards 21, I can understand where the interpretation would come from to say, you know what, maybe that was it. But I'm not so sure that that's 100% true. But I think at the same time, Scott, I found myself, as you know, because we talked about this last week, getting aggressive with how I was selling options against my longs, uh, long stock positions. But I'll tell you what, the, the, the opportunities, I think, in the derivatives markets absolutely continues to explode to the upside. We're averaging in February well over 40 million contracts per day. And I was just counting up how many uh, positions I have on right now on the, on the option side of things, and it's just about 60. So it gives you a little idea of just how much activity we are seeing and how much volume we are seeing and where they're going. It's financials, it's energy, it's also technology and some biotech. So they really are spreading out across the board in terms of, of, of where folks are attacking right now, funds are attacking right now, because these are really big trades. But um, I still have a little hesitation in me, Scott, in terms of whether or not we've actually hit the bottom. I I wonder if we've got a a few more uh, drops to come in the next couple of weeks. Well, okay, Bryn. So let's discuss whether you agree with that. Now, Mike Wilson seems to have realized once again what everybody else has realized is that the market 
Well, the correction's over for a reason, and that's because of a variety of factors. Let's listen to Mike Wilson, and we'll talk about it on the other side. Here's why he says the correction is now over. The markets are are quite uh, powerful at the moment. I mean, and it ha they have been, right? I mean, there's tremendous liquidity. There's a very uh, good and very understandable story behind the scenes, meaning we've got a, a strong economic recovery that's visible to everyone. The earnings season's been good so far. We heard about that this morning. And, and uh, people have bought into it. All right, Bryn, you're up. Now, I'm not picking on Mike. I'm just making the point of, you know, every time you try and call a correction or somebody tries to call the correction and then it doesn't work out, you fall back on, well, there's no correction because look where we are. Look at all of the liquidity in the system. Bryn, do you agree? If I can channel my inner Peter Lynch that, you know, more money has been lost anticipating the correction than actually the corrections themselves. And I think it's a, it's a tough job to be a strategist. Mike Wilson obviously does very good research, but that's a tough job to try to call that. I think when you go back and just say, you know, to quote Peter Lynch, but also just to look that corporate balance sheets are the best they've been in 50 years. Household debt equities are at the lowest in 40 years. And I think this stimulus, when we talk about like economics 101, the velocity of money, is that the government sending direct checks for multiple times to a broad swath of Americans is so stimulative. And so, and so I just think when you have these ingredients, plus you have earnings have come in so strong, I think trying to call, the, call some type of correction is just a fool's errand. I think settle in, buckle up, and, you know, volatility is the price of admission. But, you know, we have a good old fashioned bull market here. And I think people just need to understand that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people do understand that. Rob Seachin, including Credit Suisse today, which puts out a very bullish note, quote, we may see the equity rally continue without a pause. Wow. With next resistance for the S&P 500 seen at 4070 or 4075. That mm -hmm. is bullish. Is it right? I think it is. You know, you have to make hay while the while the sun's shining. But the problem is, I think everybody's making hay and uh, we've all moved to the same side of the boat. And that does concern me uh, a little bit. But there's no denying that the inventory cycle is rebuilding. The CapEx cycle is initiating. Housing cycle is uh, is recovering. There's profit revisions, volatilities coming in, the yield curve steepening. These are all incredibly uh, bullish signs, but I think they're obvious to all of us. So I love the fact when I hear, hear Pete have a little bit of caution because we need people to have some caution so that markets can climb walls of worry. Um, it's the delta in positioning that drives markets forward. I think there's a lot of room for that, though. I definitely do. So I would say I wouldn't be surprised to see some more volatility. Wouldn't be surprised. But I think getting too cute around that is not, not too wise because I think the long-term trajectory is positive around the stimulus, the support of the Fed, and the reopening of the economy. So I, I tend to agree with Mike. Joe, what about you? You know, if that was the correction, if you want to call it that, is, is it over? Is it a Credit Suisse market now where the equity rally, in their words, will continue, quote, without a pause with the next resistance at 40, 70 or 75 for the S&P 500, which just hit another new record today and sits at 3,900? So from January 26th to January 29th, the S&P 500 declined four and a half percent because of 
margin calls throughout the financial services industry related to what we were witnessing uh, with hedge funds being squeezed in GameStop and other Reddit type of names. Uh, the factor that allowed the recovery was very quiet, in my opinion, and that was the really good news we got as it related to the vaccine rollout last week. We recovered everything last week. We had one of the best weeks we've had in the last three months. And I think what investors need to focus on is that the vaccine and the positive news surrounding it, the ability to reopen this economy further and further, that is going to be the primary driver for asset prices and their valuation. And in addition to that, you still have remaining in place the abundant liquidity. So I agree with Mike, the correction was over. The correction was very similar to the correction you had in 2018 when volatility coming off a very calm 2017 got squeezed. Same type of scenario. Let me ask Margin you this. Margin call scenario. Let me ask sure. you this. Why doesn't the market care, it seemingly doesn't, about the move higher in rates? Mm -hmm. The 10 years, the highest it's been in, in nearly a year. I think since March of 2000, you're looking at the 10 years, like okay. 117 or wherever it is today. Let, let's pull that up if we can do that. Uh, why doesn't the market care about that now? Variety of reasons. Still First of all, the dividend, the dividend yield on the S&P 500, Scott, still is about 40 basis points above where a U.S. 10-year Treasury is right now. I think we're getting overexcited about the move in yields. A 30-year touched 2% today. It fell right back down below 195 to 194. Put in context, since President Biden won the election in November, what has happened for the 10-year Treasury? It's basically seen its yield rise by about 35 to 40 basis points. Because now of measure that against Now measure that against the experience of 2016 when President Trump defeated Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. What did Treasury yields do over the next three months? They rallied 80 basis points. So I think we're getting ourselves worked up over something that is very small relative to the historical perspective of the most recent presidential election before President Biden winning this past November. Who was trying to weigh in there? Was that Seachin? Because, I mean, Goldman Sachs agrees with, with Joe. Uh, given the historically low level of interest rates, we expect interest rates are still well below levels that would be thought of as a quote-unquote tipping point for equities. Was that you, Rob? Yeah, I, I just think it's the, the rate of change that matters too, Scott. Yeah, if we continue at this sprint, I think it could become worrisome. But I think we know we have the support of the Fed. We know that they're going to be likely, they're going to likely come in if rates get out of control. I also think you have these actuarial investors that the minute rates go up, they start to buy and, and it's important for them to do their liability matching. And so I do think there's this organic cap on rates. And let's remember that we're still way below the historical level of rates. And the two, when, when you look at short-term rates to long-term rates, that slope being positive is something that's indicative of the growth impulse that's in the economy right now. It's actually, rates could be going up for a very, very good reason. We're looking to the negative side of the stimulus, the weakening of the dollar. But I also think there's a positive side of this, which is the economic reopening. So I don't think we're at levels where rates are going to impede uh, the progress that we're making on, on, on the economic front. I do think, though, 
that as you look at some of the underlying and why we think about value versus growth, you have an environment where if you discount growth earnings at higher rates, it certainly has an impact on the valuations of these high growth companies. So it's something to be mindful of, but I don't think concerned of. And I'm not talking about the, the Googles of the world. No, I know. They traded 27 times. I get you, but the, mar- the market about- doesn't seem to be that concerned about that growth trade if rates continue to go up. I mean, let's face it, Pete. No. If, if you want to say, okay, the correction's over, well, one of the things that undoubtedly mm-hmm. ended the correction was the fact that tech woke up. Tech was asleep. Big mm-hmm. tech had been asleep for a couple of months, a few months. And then big tech woke up. Yeah, big tech was a- because, okay, yeah, the sector hits a pause. <laughs> the sector hits a new high today, right? It went to sleep for a little bit, like your Tampa Bay Bucks t shirt did in the basement. <laughs> now it's up five and a half percent this month. <laughs> Fang's coming off its great week, right? <laughs> Last week, Alphabet was up 14%. Microsoft was up 45 Amazon 45 Apple 35 and Facebook 35 That's a good way to end the correction, Pete, right. if big tech wakes back up. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let's not forget, Scott, I mean, when we talk about the NASDAQ, we talk about biotech, we talk about semiconductors, and we obviously talk about big uh, t- cap tech. And you, you bring up a really good point because we did have a little bit of a snooze for a while, the pause for the, for the big cap tech names, and they, there's no doubt about that that they did. Meanwhile, all, all the biotech index does is go to a brand new high, it seems like, almost every single day. Semiconductors have had an unbelievable run to the upside. It finally sort of pulled back for a little while, just a little bit, by the way, and now still pushing right near the all-time high. So I think when you look at big cap tech, though, Scott, I think the reality is this. Not only were they at the pause, but then there was that short little brief run up into earnings. And then, as what happens oftentimes with earnings in big cap tech, especially Apple and some of those, they put out record numbers. And then they sell it off a little bit. And then everybody's just puzzled. I think the reality is that was an opportunity and an opportunity because I think big cap tech continues to grow. When you look at those growth numbers that were produced already for us just across the board, it doesn't matter. Take your pick of Google and Amazon and Apple and all the rest of Microsoft. But the numbers that they produced were absolutely extraordinary. And I still think when you look at these names on a forward P.E., all of these names are growing at a rate that actually makes sense to me why they're trading at the PEs they are. And actually, quite honestly, I think there's plenty of room to the upside. So, Bryn, you have a big position in the queues. So clearly you're still placing your bets in, in tech. And it's awfully hard for the correction or for the market to stay down if big tech has woken up. Yeah, I don't think big tech went to sleep. I think it maybe took a nap for a couple days, a couple mm. minutes. And so but when you look well, at a couple months, you know, Mike. Well, but that's okay because it has to digest because it had an incredible, an incredible 11 months of the year when you just take 2020 and then go back a few years. But I think when you look at the earnings power of these companies, especially the big companies in the queues, which is the 100 largest non-financial financials on the NASDAQ, I mean, Apple, you know, Google's earnings, Microsoft, they were incredible. And so I think when I look out and say over the next few years, where do I see earnings consistency? I'm going to look there first. That's where I see it. Where I'm not so clear is with a company like Peloton, which is a wonderful company, a wonderful product, but that is trading at exorbitant levels. I'm not comfortable saying, can they grow into that now? And then also, I think, you know, talking a little bit about rates for a second, because we do spend a lot of time on the show talking about rates, the steepening of the yield curve, the market's absolutely pricing it in because that's showing you when the yield curve steepens, it's showing you that. The, the market is forecasting economic growth. 
Unlike in 1999 and early 2000, when you had a totally flat yield curve where the short end was close to six and the 10-year was close to six and actually inverted. So I would be more concerned, I think investors should be more concerned if you actually start seeing the yield curve flatten. That steepness of the yield curve is showing you that real economic growth is being priced in. And that's a wonderful thing because we need that in order to, to support these multiples and to, and to move past the, the, the virus and to move into more normal times. Yeah, well, it's certainly helping the bank trade, right, Pete? That's why you're buying more Bank of America calls. Yeah, I absolutely love these financials. And obviously, as we've watched this 10-year, everybody's talking about it. Bryn just uh, did a nice dissection of that. So you look at that, Scott. Plus, look at some of the numbers that were produced when they kicked off earnings as well. And, you know, we had that move. We've, we were moving around. Financials have been up and down. And they've been fairly volatile, really. If you just look at the last month or so, not too terribly long, they were trading right at these levels. They took a nice drop. And now here we are once again. I just think that those that is an area, when you look at the fundamental side of these big banks and, and, and throw in a lot of the names that aren't big banks. So just in the financial category, I mean, Capital One, they make their money, really, their true revenue comes from credit cards. And that is why they are a stock that I really like, because I think they've got plenty of upside. They've got that diversity of what they are. And I think there's a number of different names out there that aren't Bank of America City and, and Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley that really do have a chance to do much better in the present environment, as long as, and they were talking about these rates and everything else, as long as the Sprint doesn't get too fast. The acceleration gets too fast, and then we start to get overheated, and that could be an issue. So let me make, let me make clear here. Let me make sure I understand you clearly. So you bought Bank of America. Yeah. You bought you bought more Bank of America calls, and Bank of America stock. I, I did. Yes. And Capital One stock. No. I. Yeah. Sorry. Take me At, through it. Capital One stock. Yes. Uh, yes. Capital One stock. Yes. Bank of America, not stock, but I added more to the options. I've already got a couple of different positions. I had City last week, but that moved so fast that I already got out of that name. But there's a combination of, of different banks out there. I still own U.S. Bank. I haven't added to that position, but I, I'm certainly considering it. I think there's a lot of different financials right now that are in different categories. We always put it into one category. They are all different, let's be honest. So I think there's, if you want to own Morgan Stanley, you own it for a different reason than you might be owning something like a Bank of America probably. So I think there's a lot of different areas out there in the financial industry where we can find great investments that have made some moves, but I still think there's plenty of more room to the upside, you no doubt. You still got Wells Fargo? I do, yes. Yep. So that's another one. Yeah. I, you know, I appreciate you pointing that one out. I'd forgotten, but yes, I've got, you know, that's, that's one where, Scott, I, I had multiple positions on in Wells Fargo, and actually I got rid of some of that. I actually trimmed some of that, and that wasn't because of anything negative about Wells Fargo at all. I still think it has a great trajectory to the upside, but what I was looking at was, look, I've got to be disciplined. I've got multiple positions on. I'm going to take off some of those positions and leave the ones that are a little bit further out in time because I'm not in the stock any longer. These are just option positions in Wells Fargo. Rob Seachin, what about the financials here? You like them at New Edge or what? L love them. Love them. 80 percent have reported. 90 percent have beat by an average of 30 percent. Their valuations are low. They're only up 6% year to date. And you have the steepening yield curve and the rotation into the cyclical trade, which is going to benefit value. There's no question that values are the bell, value, uh, financials are the bell of the value ball this year. Yeah, well, they've look at the, the three months on the, on the XLF is almost 25%. Joe, what stocks do you own right now in the financials? 
Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. I'm enjoying a uh, strong 11% return with Goldman Sachs. I've talked frequently about assets, the gathering, the trading, and pricing of assets. I gave T. Rowe prices my final trade the other day. The asset managers are trading very strong right now. Look at a name like AMG. It's up 14% today. That stock has been trading for the last couple of years in a very uh, dormant capacity. I also think you could look at some of the insurance companies, whether it's Metropolitan Life or AIG. And on the research side of the financial services industry, I know you use FactSet. FactSet is a name that I like. S&P Globals and Moody's as well. I'm looking at FactSet right now. I'm glad you uh, gave that disclaimer out there. Uh, the other part of the value trade that's that's doing really well, especially today, I mean, end of late, um, not to shortchange it as all, is uh, is crude oil. Uh, WTI is pushing uh, towards 60 yeah. bucks, 58 bucks. That's a better than 2% gain. Bryn, you're, you're the one down in Houston, and uh, your portfolio is representing big time down in big Texas. Kinder Morgan, Western Midstream Partners, that's W-E-S, if you want to look at the ticker. Viper Energy, V-N-O-M, Energy Transfer, Plains GP, Plains All-American Pipeline, Targa Resources, Enterprise Products. Maybe we can show some of these names on the board as mm -hmm. you talk about this space, why you think it's a good place to make money right now. Yeah, so I mean, I think if you, once again, if you believe that the yield curve is steepening because the economy's recovered, that the vaccines will continue to be rolled out, that the economy, I mean, Bank of America has a forecast for 5% GDP this year, incredible. And so in a reflation trade, what does one need to have reflate? Oil and, you know, the Biden policies, which are, which are you know, definitely going to be clean energy biased and with taking off drilling on federal lands, that alone takes off three million barrels of oil a day. And so I think everyone needs to understand we have clean energy goals, but we do not have clean energy actually infrastructure built out. That's going to be years down the line. And by taking oil offline, I actually think that the Biden policies are actually going to increase and continue to put pressure on, on oil. And there's going to be certain companies like the Midstreams, the royalties that will benefit from that. So we have a basket of names that we like. They're very high quality in the space. You also have, I think, energy is like 2.5% of the S&P, and asset managers are really under-allocated to energy. And so we've all been talking about value. Well, I mean, energy names are a really good way to take a percent or two overexposure, and you're going to get a big bang for your buck. So I think you have a lot, of, a lot of tailwinds this year where energy can be one of the consistent, you know, top performers, not just over like a two- or three-month period, as, we, as we've seen in the years past. So, Joe, what do you think? I mean, it sounds clear that, that Bryn's own, Bryn owns these names for more than just not wanting to get dirty looks down in the Houston area, representing the territory <laughs> down there. Is this a good place to make money? Oh, I mean, I've, I've been wrong because I have not owned enough energy companies. I only own EQT and CNX, and their correlation is to natural gas. So clearly, uh, I haven't done a good job there. Uh, Bryn is correct. Energy right now is the place to be. I also think there's a little bit of in a very slow-moving unwind of a lot of the energy names that have been shorted. As example, you've got RRC. I think you've got uh, short interest there at around somewhere 16% call it. So they're not astronomical short numbers, but a lot of the energy names have been shorted over the last six months, and you're beginning to see it unwind well, of that. I think Bryn is correct. I was going to say, you know, that space, Joe, 
energy is up mm -hmm. 51%. I was going to give you a quiz, actually. I was going to do what you did to Pete last week. I was going to ask you if you knew how much <laughs> energy was up over the last three months, but I didn't want to do a Joe to Pete moment. I was going to give you the answer to make you to, to save you. 51% though You're over three months. I mean, that's a lot. It, yes. it, it really has a lot more to it, go. It, that blows away every other sector. <laughs> I mean, not even but close. It's from an incredibly low base, though. It's from an incredibly so, low base. Uh, Right. And Bryn's correct. I think the XLE, I'll pull it up. I think the XLE was probably 60 this time last year. So when you, you look back on a 12 month basis to, to Bryn's point, energy has a lot of room to recover technically. And certainly it's it's recovering fundamentally. ML, MLP, MLP, Scott, rallied in the fourth quarter, 32 percent, and they were still down 28 percent for the year. I mean, a huge disconnect yeah. there. No, I know. Bryn's point's well taken. I'll let you expand on it, Bryn. Yes, I mean, the stocks have obviously come from a very low base. But still, when you're up 50-something percent in just a few months, you know, you have to start wondering whether there's really a lot left, at least in the near term. Well, I mean, I think that you really have to go back and say, where, what is the price of oil going to be? And I think this is the challenge for people who don't want to invest in energy, is that it's like, I don't want this commodity flying all over the place to predict the, 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 the value of this company, and it's very valid. But I think, once again, as we're going to pivot as a country to these cleaner energies, and there's going to be less drilling, and then we have this thing that's, that's fact called the decline curve, and so there's not a lot of spending here in this space. I think that the companies that are left are survivors. And we're going to have, over the next year or two, a really good one runway because energies, I think prices have a floor because of the lack of drilling, the lack of spending, and the decline curves. So I just think it, they have a lot more room to run. And people are so under-allocated to energy, especially in the value trade. You really kind of have to be there if you're going to be in value. You can't just own financials. That, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Pete, you bought calls in ExxonMobil, right? I thought you already owned Exxon. Or was that Chevron? Yeah. No, I did. And I got out of that name. I was both in the calls and the stock. And I'm still in Chevron. That's the only stock, actually. That and KMI. KMI is a different story altogether. But Chevron is the only oil stock that I own. But I've got multiple different areas uh, that are in the beta name, Scott. When you look at Marathon Petroleum, Marathon Oil, uh, across the board, there are so many different other names that we see all the time, Occidental and those kinds of names. <laughs> I'll tell you what, the beta names have been on fire. And all you've got to do is, this is a surrogate, essentially, right now for oil. And do I love oil long term because of all the reasons you guys are talking about? Probably not. But I think for sure in the shorter term, which is why I only own one stock, the rest of my trading is options. But in the shorter term, there is no doubt in my mind there's going to be some great trade there. I mean, all you've got to do is, okay, look back into November. We were looking at crude that was trading around 35, 36. Now here we are pushing towards 60. So that kind of a move is absolutely going to have an effect on all of the various names, whether it's Chevron or Exxon or, or all the rest. But I can tell you this, you continue to see it in the beta names where they're moving at 8 and 10% when they get these moves to the upside. And yes, they do have sharp moves to the downside as well. But in, that, in this space right now, I think it's one of the great trading areas in the market because we know from a long-term perspective where things are going with clean energy, but at least in the shorter, and I'm talking shorter meaning in the next year or two, like Bryn was describing, um, I think there's plenty of room to trade these. I think the fundamental story is there and makes a lot of sense, and I think there's some great opportunities out there. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have more coming up. About Reddit, the New York Times reporter Kate Kelly investigating how the squeeze is impacting short sellers. 
She joins us, plus our own Leslie Picker is with us as well. She has some new data on how hedge funds are faring in these markets. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. I'm Morgan Brennan, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour in Britain. New confirmed cases of COVID-19 hitting a two-month low today. This is new reported cases in the U.S. on Sunday dropped to 88,000, the smallest daily increase in over three months. In Myanmar, the military government has imposed a curfew and banned gatherings of more than five people in the country's two largest cities. This in response to continued protests against last week's coup. Pope Francis joining the list of world leaders calling on Myanmar's military leaders to free political prisoners. Delta Airlines will keep middle seats empty on its planes through the end of April. Delta was already the only major airline that isn't booking middle seats through next month. And veteran Republican Senator Richard Shelby has announced he will not run for re-election. Shelby is Alabama's longest-serving senator. He was first elected to the post in 1986. He's the fourth GOP senator to take himself out of the 2022 elections. Scott, back over to you. Morgan, appreciate it very much. Thank you, Morgan Brennan. All right, lots of focus on hedge funds these days, given the GameStop saga and the impact on short sellers. We're also getting some new numbers on just how some of the biggest funds did last month. Kate Kelly of The New York Times joins us now as she just wrote about short sellers in The New York Times. Our Leslie Picker following the money and is with us as well. Ladies, good to see you. Kate, I begin with you. You take what is essentially a very personal look at short sellers. I'm wondering what you found as to how they're dealing with things in the wake of GameStop. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. I think the most interesting thing that struck me while I was reporting, I was talking to Fahmi Kadir, who runs uh, Softcat Capital, about a $50 million short-only hedge fund in the city. And she was saying, look, I, you know, I, I understand what Gabe Plotkin from Melvin Capital and Steve Cohen, who are hiring uh, security right now, are going through. They've been targets, of course, on Reddit over uh, having been short GameStop. And some see that GameStop was a short squeeze intended for Plotkin and his fund. Uh, but she said, hey, I, I've been at this for a number of years, too. And, you know, I'm in a position where I share my GPS coordinates with my lawyer when I travel for fear of my safety. And other shorts I talked to had incredible stories 
stories about the heat that they come under when they go after suspicions of corporate fraud or accounting gimmicks uh, as part of their deep research to look into companies to go short. Now, some would draw a distinction between people who do that kind of focused research. We're talking about not just the people I mentioned, but the Jim Chanoses of the world, the Jim Carotherses of the world, Mark Cahotis back in the day, who's retired now, and the folks who do long short, so short is just one part of the strategy, or the, the more uh, small investors that are on uh, platforms like Robinhood taking short positions. Very different approaches, but it is a tough type of trading no matter who you are. Yeah, no, it was, it's a really good read. Les, I mean, you, you obviously follow all sorts of different you know, fund managers. How was January overall for the business itself? So what's remarkable is there were so many high-profile situations where people lost a lot of money in January, finding themselves on the other side of the trade that a lot of people on social media were really bidding up in GameStop and AMC and so forth. But when you actually look at the average of what the entirety of the hedge fund industry put out in January, they actually provided gains and they beat the S&P 500 and a well-tracked uh, index of bonds, both government and corporate. And so you have to ask yourself, well, well, why is that? Well, part of the reason has to do with just tremendous dispersion among this volatility. You saw the winners win really, really, really big. Senvest is a name that we've mentioned. They posted gains of $700 million on GameStop alone. Uh, and then the losses were really steep. Um, on the other side of that trade, of course, Melvin Capital, Kate just mentioned Gabe Plotkin, uh, down 53% for the month of January. So when you actually average that out, you see on a fund-weighted basis, according to HFR, uh, the gains were about 0.9% for the month. But that just goes kind of to the heart of what hedge funds do. They try to traverse in this volatility. Uh, and at the, end of the at the end of the day, you're going to see some winners and you're going to see some losers. And that's what happened in January. I'm wondering, Kate, if, if look, I mean, being a short seller in a raging bull market and a long running bull market is tough. <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, look, that's bad enough to have to deal with if you're a short seller. Do you think what we witnessed with, with GameStop is going to just change people's um, you know, interest in, in that strategy at, at all? I'm, I'm thinking of you know, FAMI, as you, as you wrote about, you know, and investors like that just saying, you know what, I don't need this anymore. I don't need to worry about my own personal safety while I'm trying to do my work for investors. Yeah, that's a great question, Scott. And that was actually the premise that I started the story with, because people like Mark Cahotis uh, were saying this could be the death of the traditional sort of research-driven short seller. Cahotis retired a while ago. Jim Carruthers at Sophos Capital, still very much at it, but has apparently scaled back. Some people have left his firm, and he's doing less uh, trading based on what I've read in institutional investor. Um, Jim Chanos, still very much at it. But, um, you know, the people I talk to in the slightly younger generation, Fahmi Kadir, who's 30, um, or Nate Kopikar from Orso Partners in San Francisco, 33, they both said, we love this. We, we feel like it's an important service. Uh, we're willing to take the risks as uh, unnerving as it can be sometimes. I mean, Kopikar was trailed by a private detective into a bathroom in his own office building a few years ago. I and mean, that's like how intense it can be sometimes. But yeah, I mean, Chano said something to the effect that in this bull market, 
short sellers have been left for dead on the side of the road. I mean, you have Elon Musk, who makes the best performing stock of last year, of course, Tesla, but who makes a sport of making fun of short sellers and sells red short shorts on his uh, website, or was last year, with the Tesla logo just to poke fun at them. So uh, joking aside, I think it's it's a hard thing to do technically and financially. And then when you have personal security threats, yeah, I think it probably has a lot of people rethinking the business. But again, those that I talk to say they love it and they're sticking with it. Well, you better love it, right? It's it's tough. It's risky. It's unpopular. You have to deal with 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 all of that. Leslie, I'll give you the last word. You can you know react to the same uh, the same part of the conversation. Yeah, I would agree with Kate. It's not a business for the faint of heart by any means. Uh, what's remarkable about the dialogue that's taken place in 2021 is the fact that, uh, you know, there's there's one thing to be a just a short only fund uh, like the names that Kate was mentioning. Uh, but a lot of the firms that were targeted in this in this social media uh, volatility that we saw last month, uh, they do long short. And that's kind of the the ethos of a hedge fund. I mean, if you're a long-only fund, uh, typically you can't really charge the same kind of fees if that you can if you're a long-short fund. So that kind of gets at the heart at what hedge funds do. You know, Gabe Plotkin's uh, Melvin Capital, they were a long-short fund. They went long some some stocks. They went short some stocks. The ones that they were betting against happened to be uh, the ones that a lot of people on social media wanted to drive up the price. And so they found themselves on the wrong side of the trade. Uh, but it, it kind of you know, it speaks to this idea of just short selling as a whole. Um, I don't know if there will be any regulations that really change the game on that front, um, but it's certainly an area to watch, especially as people decide, uh, you know, how they go about disclosing things in their 13Fs. They don't have to disclose short positions, uh, but they do disclose options. They disclose put positions. And so that's something that uh, the people on Reddit really targeted with these hedge funds. Yeah. Appreciate the conversation very much. Leslie Picker, Kate Kelly. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. Up next, the big ETFs to watch today. And before the break, take a look at the S&P sectors as we give you the wall sector check on the S&P, which hit a new record high today above 3,900 for the first time ever. Good for 16, led by a topic we talked about just a few moments ago, energy. Back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Hello, all. Bob Pisani here with today's ETF Edge. A day after one of the biggest betting days of the year, what's the state of online gaming? And with Tesla's announcement it's made an investment in Bitcoin, what's the state of those Bitcoin ETFs? Joining us now, Will Hershey, who runs the Roundhill Sports Betting and iGaming ETF, that's symbol BETZ, and Jeff Kilberg, founder and CEO of KKM Financial and a partner in a fund that's sponsoring a new Bitcoin ETF. Will, seven months, your sports betting ETF has taken in $350 million. It's a hot topic. How was betting on the Super Bowl? Super Bowl? What is the state of sports betting? And will it expand to the big four states this year? 
Absolutely. I think this should come as a surprise to no one, but the Super Bowl is the event of the year for the betting industry. We're expected the numbers to come in at more than $500 million in terms of regulated wagers this year. That's up substantially from $300 million last year, and a lot of that growth is coming from mobile and online betting, as well as new states coming online. Recently, we've had launches in Michigan, in Tennessee, in Virginia. In terms of the state of the industry, since the repeal of PASPA in 2018, we've been in hyper-growth mode. I expect more states to legal including potentially New York and Texas throughout the remainder of the year. Okay, and Jeff, we have seen Bitcoin ETFs rejected time and again by the SEC. Is 2021 finally the year we might see a Bitcoin ETF? And, And what has changed? What would have changed that made them agree to it this time? Well, Bob, I think 2021 is the year we see a Bitcoin ETF. We just filed for Bitcoin ETF, and the response from the SEC is that they have to wait for the Trading and Markets Division to get comfortable with the concept. And how did the Trading and Markets Division of the SEC get comfortable with the Bitcoin ETF? I think it's listening to the community. Look at the active as well as passive investors. Investors, they're looking for a remedy to own Bitcoin. They're looking for a safe environment to own Bitcoin. And historically, Bob, we have seen a lot of the products that allow exposure to Bitcoin traded a premium to NAV or traded a premium to the spot price. And lastly, I think the splash day with Tesla talking about owning Bitcoin, 1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin, and also the fact that we are seeing the broader adoption going back to PayPal last October, where they're allowing cryptocurrencies to be transacted inside their community. So there's just a lot of synergies happening. And lastly, just to put a couple of sprinkles on the cupcake, Bob, we're seeing Ethereum. Ethereum futures start trading today on the CME group. So the broader swap global adoption of cryptocurrency is here at us, And that's why I'm optimistic on a Bitcoin ETF for 2021. Okay, thanks, Will and Jeff. Now join us at 1 p.m. Eastern time as we go dive into sports betting and Bitcoin with Will and Jeff. He'll be joined by Dave Nautic from ETF Trends. That's all. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Scott, back to you. All right, Bob. Appreciate that very much. Thank you. Stay with us. Pete's got... Unusual activity coming up. We're back right after this. Unusual activity time. Pete, what do you got for us today? I'm going to start off with Disney, Scott. And this one's pretty interesting because if you just go back to January 28th, this stock actually got hit pretty hard with the rest of the markets. And stock was trading about $169 a share. Well, they started buying calls at that point in time. They were going out into April. And then this last Thursday, they were also buying, and they were buying this week's so the expiring on, the, on Friday. They started going after those as well. That was pretty aggressive. Well, they're doing it all over again, except for now, instead of the 180s, now they're buying the 190s. And they bought approximately 4,000 of those 190s for about 270 up to about 370. The problem right now, though, Scott, is stock was trading about 185. I just took a look. Stock's already moving to the upside. It's already through 190. So a big move already already starting to occur here in Disney, but you could see this coming because of all this unusual that we were seeing in front of that. Second one is this, BP. We were just talking about energy and this big run that we've seen. Stock was trading about 21 and a quarter today, and we had some pretty nice aggressive buying in there. 4,000 of this week's expiring February 12th, the 22 calls. So just out of the many calls, very inexpensive. They're 15 to 25 cents. But what makes this the most interesting for me is they're buying XLE, they're buying XOM, they're buying these BPs, and they were buying Occidental. So a lot of energy, unusual buying today. And I think this BP stands out for me that this is a stock that absolutely could move to the upside even further. Maybe I'm you, in both of these trades, as, as I just mentioned. Yep. Maybe you said this about Disney, and forgive me if I just didn't hear you say it. Um, earnings are this Thursday. 
right? So, you know, yes, the, sir. the stock has had a nice ramp and it's going to have even a bigger ramp yep. now into that number. It better be a good report. Yep. It better be a good report. They're going to have to crush it. But we all know what's been going on with Disney and streaming and everything else, Scott. So uh, as sports return and ESPN's done much better, I, I, I have to think that the anticipation is that people are looking at this saying, you know what? Uh, they might have knocked this out of the park. So it looks like what people are saying right now as far as the options. Yeah, been a huge run. Pete, thank you. Oil prices, as we said yeah. earlier, highest Thanks, level man. in about a year. We'll find out how the futures traders are playing that. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back on the half right after this. Let's do the futures outlook now. Crude is on the move today. It's highest level since January of 2020. Brent also touching its highest levels in over a year. Scott Nations is right there with Nations Indexes. What's your trade? I mean, this has been a real big move. It has been, Scott. It's up 2% today. This would be the seventh day in a row. It ended up higher on the day. Everybody thinks we're going to be back to normal as far as the economy is concerned last half of 2021. So they see demand good. And you'll supply OPEC Plus has foregone production of about 2 billion barrels in the last 10 months. So whether it's supply or demand, it's helping the bulls. But this is overdone, Scott. The relative strength index for crude oil is now 76, so it's definitely overbought. And also, uh, crude oil right now is more expensive than it would be for this time next year. So it's overdone. I would be a seller once we see some weakness. So I would be a seller of the March contract. I would stop into that uh, at 56.40, so that's below Friday's low target. Once I'm in, 54.70. And the stop, once I'm in, we always trade these with a stop, would be 57.40. Scott, at those prices, we'd be risking $1,000 to make $1,700. Appreciate the trade. Overdone. The words. We'll see what happens. Scott Nations, thank you. We'll step away. We'll come back. We'll do final trades. All right, gang, let's do finals. Bryn, you're up first. Perfect. Um, Ethereum. Uh, it's volatile, so dollar cost average. But if you want to invest in the circulatory system of blockchain and Ethereum, um, Ethereum is Bitcoin's little but smarter sister. Um, Ethereum really allows the technology for the massive growth within smart contracts and decentralized finance. Okay, good stuff. Thank you for that. Nice to see you. All right, Rob Seachin, good to see you as well. What's your final? XLF, the financial spider. Uh, one of the cyclical sectors that have lagged, but, but shouldn't have. Yeah, well, shouldn't. We, mentioned, we mentioned earlier the run that uh, financials and the XLF have been on. Good stuff. Uh, Joe Terranova. Yum China, Y-U-M-C. Fundamentally, you saw an earnings and improvement specifically related to delivery for Pizza Hut and KFC. The technical momentum is gathering here for it to continue to move higher. All right. And the man who used to play for the Super Bowl champion, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Pete. I was really excited for them yesterday. Unbelievable game. I got to tell you, um, AMD, Scott, it has not performed very well this year. Yep. SMH has. I think it's time for some catch-up. I think it's going higher. All right, good stuff. Great to see everybody. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, 
the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.